Hello, and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar, and located at warscholar.org. We talk about military history from ancient times to modern, and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out my interview with Jim Miller, where he talks about a near disaster on the NASA near mission to an asteroid, and that's on technologyinspace.com, and my interview with Brian Herskowitz, who uses various famous movies as examples on how to write a screenplay. You can find that interview at fullcontactnerd.com. And especially, don't forget, November 10th is the United States Marine Corps birthday. Thanks for listening. I'm speaking with David Nasca, author of The Emergence of American Amphibious Warfare, 1898 to 1945, published by the Naval Institute Press, September 15, 2020. Thank you for speaking with me. Hey, thanks for having me, Chris. So uh, first, how did you get into studying and writing a book on this subject? You know, Chris, I'll tell you what, big, uh, it, it always helps when you when you join the Marine Corps and you've been in the Marine Corps for 20 plus years, not to say that the Marine Corps brainwashed me, but it definitely shows a different perspective of amphibious warfare. So if you ask me when I got my taste, I'll say it was back in 2001 when I entered officer candidate school and I was first introduced to amphibious warfare. Mm -hmm. And from there, it kind of developed as I, I went through the ranks from second lieutenant to first lieutenant then captain, major, and now at lieutenant colonel, where I hit the wickets of expeditionary warfare school command and staff, and then I attended the non-resident Air War College. Mm -hmm. So I noticed, so in the book blurb, it says, it talks about how the U.S. was pursuing uh, the development of amphibious warfare in this time period, whereas others were pursuing technology. Uh, the U.S. was was training in this. Um, what uh, What was going on at that time that the U.S. decided that was a good idea? You know, I think just like any other country that uh, fights a major war, I think every country tries to predict how the next war is going to fight. Mm -hmm. So for the United States, uh, we kind of see amphibious warfare develop from the American Civil War to actually going into a more concentrated effort during the Spanish-American War, mm -hmm. where we see the United States deploy forces overseas for the first time in thousands of numbers, and mainly in the uh, Caribbean with the uh, Spanish-American War and the occupation of Cuba and Puerto Rico. And then, of course, you got the Philippines as well with a smaller force here. But from there, you kind of see as the United States' responsibilities expand beyond the North American continent, the United States not only finds out that it needs a bigger navy, a more modern navy, to protect its interests overseas, but more importantly, they also needed amphibious capabilities to put their money where their mouth is, which is being able to land U.S. troops on foreign soil and compel a, a country or a government to do what it wants to do in support of American policy here. But we really start to see it take off after the First World War, you know, where we see Japan developing its own naval strength, the fact that it was able to grab hold of the Carolinas and a lot of the former German positions in the Asia-Pacific region. And we kind of see the United States starting to think in, this, uh, in the interwar years, what's the next war going to be like? And then as a result, it wasn't just the United States. It was all the major powers like Germany, Great Britain, France, the Soviet Union, uh, Japan, trying to predict how the next war was going to be fought. You know, So we see for the Japanese, it was naval aviation. For the British, they saw air power. 
for the Germans. They looked at armored warfare and, uh, and combined arms as a way of fighting future wars, as well as the, the development of the Luftwaffe. For the United States, they also tried to look at amphibious warfare in the interwar years because they, while the British fought Gallipoli was the end of amphibious warfare, the United States saw it as an opportunity to put, kind of utilize the industrial technology and know-how to modernize amphibious warfare. So how does, and I'll ask a very basic question, um, how does amphibious warfare differ from simply sailing up to the enemy's coast and disembarking and, you know, it's uh, how do you differentiate the warfare from the movement, so to speak, if that makes sense? No, it does, Chris. Absolutely. It's the same question I asked myself when I wrote this book. What's different about American amphibious warfare compared to amphibious warfare that was used for centuries? You know, I mean, we looking back in history, we see the Greeks landing in Syracuse during the Peloponnesian War. And we find out that the Greek expeditionary force gets wiped out, you know. But you also see some strong victories, too, like the British doing their landing over in Quebec, you know, and take and fighting in the Plains of Abraham and being able to kick the French off the North American continent. But what makes the American amphibious warfare so different, especially in the 20th century, is the fact that they were able to embrace their technological know-how and, and the fact that it was no longer an ad hoc uh, tactical or uh, an ad hoc tactical or operational movement. This was something that was deliberately planned. It was organized, and they had specialists that were able to coordinate the most one of the most difficult forms of warfare, which is being able to coordinate land, air, and naval forces working in conjunction like an orchestra to land on foreign soil where the enemy is dug in and prepared to fight off an invasion. You know, so the embracing of technology, the use of of uh, interlocking fires, the fact that they're able to do tactical air support, where they're able to coordinate between ground naval and air forces, that good old-fashioned naval gunfire, you know, the uh, strategic bombing, all that worked in concert by specialists within the U.S. military. That not, didn't happen overnight. It took, it took years for that to develop, you know. So first, is amphibious warfare more about defending the forces so that they get on shore more or less intact, or is it more about projecting uh, your lethal force against the enemy as you are disembarking, or maybe that changes over time. That's Absolutely. How- I mean, yeah, like the thing about amphibious warfare, it's more than just just landing troops on the ground and building what the Marine Corps calls the Iron Mountain, which is you land a whole bunch of weapons and equipment and supplies, and then as combat strength goes from zero to 100, that's when, when they build enough combat strength to be able to push inland. You know, so in this case... You know, you had different types of amphibious warfare. You had everything from amphibious withdrawals, as seen with Dunkirk, you know, where you had the British Expeditionary Force pulled out against great odds against the German German military over in, in France. You also got the fact that you got the United States being able to launch amphibious raids in the South Pacific when it was kind of like on the ropes in the, uh, the Pacific theater of operations against the Japanese, trying to make the Japanese predict where exactly U.S. forces were going to commit themselves in order to stop any U.S. advance in the South Pacific, you know. So in this case, when we get to like 1943 and 1944, especially in 1945, you see the United States actually refine and build its amphibious capabilities to be able not only just to do minor tactical or, or local operations ashore, but they're, they're landing there on a hostile beach that's been well prepared by the enemy, and they're there to stay and fight their way inland. 
ultimately it comes down to power projection, which is compelling another state to do what it doesn't want to do, and it's imposing a cost on the enemy state. So for the United States, buying against Japan, is it cheaper for the Japanese to give in to U.S. demands of unconditional surrender, or is it cheaper to go ahead and resist the U.S. military force that advances across the Pacific? And it was a hard decision for the Japanese Empire, because they never made that decision until by 1945, when the U.S. is literally sitting on their doorstep, about to coordinate a massive invasion of the Japanese home islands. How much of a limitation is it to amphibious warfare that um, it can usually only be conducted on specific beaches, specific sites? It's almost like the enemy knows where an attack will come if amphibious warfare is utilized. Oh, absolutely. You know, and you have, and that's the thing is that Sometimes it's a hit or a miss, you know. I mean, we can use the example of the Dieppe raid, where the British land in the uh, coast of France there, and they conduct a raid, and it ends up going south. You know, you also got the landing in Anzio, where the U.S. forces were able to land and try to outflank the German positions on the Italian peninsula. But they were too slow to move and seize Rome. As a matter of fact, Kesselring has the opportunity to kind of uh, contain the U.S. landing force and be able to hold them long enough to allow... German forces to withdraw, you know, and that's the thing, like landing in Normandy wasn't just simply landing U.S. troops, it was deliberately planted where they built this giant ghost army under the uh, command of Patton, and they were kind of sending hints that they were going to land in Calais instead of Normandy, you know, so it was a lot of, a lot of information warfare, it was a lot of uh, demonstrations that went on on both sides, both for the Germans and the Americans, and the fact that you're trying to guess where exactly they're going to land, so it's a lot of a lot of bait and switch in this case. Mm-hmm. You know, we also see it in, Sa- in the Saipan campaign in the Pacific Theater, where the U.S. do a demonstration on one side of the island and then land on completely on the other and manage to ne- neutralize and then destroy the Japanese positions there with uh, minimal losses. However, you get to a campaign like Iwo Jima, mm-hmm. and the Japanese know exactly where the U.S. is going to land. They know exactly what the terrain is like, and they have prepared positions zeroed in with their machine guns and their artillery and their snipers. So it was it was pretty much like what type of what type of landing is it going to be? What is is the U.S. willing to pay the cost of landing in a prepared beach in in Okinawa or Iwo Jima or uh, or Peleliu? You know, and in this case, the United States could afford to take that risk. You know, while the Japanese being cut off were deliberately starved or bombarded until the U.S. forces were ready and willing to land in and finish them off. I'm speaking with David Nasca, author of The Emergence of American Amphibious Warfare, 1898 to 1945. You can find more information about David on his Amazon author page. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, so far, Please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more military history ranging from the ancient to the modern, please visit warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep up with my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at fullcontactnerd.com and technologyinspace.com. And now back to the podcast. Do you think, how difficult is it to develop the skill to defend against amphibious warfare? Because I know Japan made some mistakes at the start and then they fixed them and were more effective. Is it sort, if you know what you're doing, is it sort of 
much easier to defend against an amphibious attack, or or what does that take? I can say for the for the uh, Second World War, I think it was a lot of learning that went on on both sides. I mean, for the United States, they even though they spent the uh, interwar years experimenting and writing about amphibious warfare, uh, when they went when they came to putting their money where their mouth is, they learned some hard lessons. And some examples include Tarawa. You know, Tarawa is the first opposed amphibious landing. I mean, people talk about Guadalcanal, but they, when the U.S. forces landed there, they didn't run into any uh, any Japanese resistance there. But in the case of Tarawa, they were landing in a well-prepared island where the Japanese Marines there were knew where they were coming. They knew that they were going to come in with everything they got. And they also made, I guess the garrison commander there made the local claim that it would take a million men in the and hundreds of years for the U.S. to take it. But the Marines took it around three or four days there to secure the island, but at great cost. Mm -hmm. But because this was the first supposed amphibious landing that the U.S. was really going to fight, they brought in Marine cameramen and cinematographers because they want, it wasn't because they wanted the entertainment value into the rate, raise the morale of the U.S. population back home. They wanted to see what exactly an amphibious landing looked like. You know, and they, not only did they learn from the film that they obtained from landing on Tarawa and finding that campaign that almost completely failed, especially when you had had the landing craft getting stuck on the coral reefs hundreds mm -hmm. of yards away from the beach. And it wasn't until you got the Amtraks, the amphibious tractors that they still had a limited supply on that was able to save the day and be able to overwhelm the Japanese defenders. But most importantly, they the camera the camera work that was done by the marine combat photographers and the cinematographers captured a lot of lessons learned on how an imposed amphibious landing looks like at the tactical level, and more importantly, what were some of those mistakes that happened there, and being able to do what you call an after-action report is not focusing on what you got right, but what you got wrong, and it's that type of experience that was necessary to build up in order to be able to perform outstanding under increasing pressure in, cam in future campaigns, such as Peleliu, the Philippines, the Ryukyu Islands, and then, of course, Normandy, uh, Italy, and North Africa in the, in the uh, European theater. Mm -hmm. you know, so it, it, was, it was something that had to be learned, and it had to be constantly reinforced. You know? But it took time, it took effort, and it took, a, it took refining the technologies and their tactics. I mean, for the Japanese, yes, they got better, but when you when you isolate and destroy the entire garrison, all that institutional knowledge that they just learned from that campaign is wiped out. While for the U.S., after the campaign's over, they're able to take the survivors of these campaigns, incorporate them into the education and train cycle of the U.S. military to learn what went right, what went wrong, and make adjustments accordingly so they can do better next time. Mm -hmm. Did the... Do you know if the Japanese engaged in any amphibious warfare when they were taking, you know, territory in the Far East at the start of the war? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the fact that they were able to land in the Philippines in the opening salos of, uh, of World War II speaks volumes because the U.S. wasn't expecting the Japanese to quickly overwhelm a large U.S. U.S. and Filipino garrison in the island of Luzon. Mm. You know, they thought this was going to be a very deliberate movement from the Japanese. Instead, you have this lightning campaign where the Japanese land troops in the Philippines. They land troops in uh, in Malaysia where they're able to seize Singapore from the land instead of from the sea like the British were expecting. And then, of course, you got the Japanese landings that took place in Indonesia and New Guinea and the fact that the, there was this huge... Uh, 
huge uproar, both in the U.S. and Australia, that if the Japanese were able to land troops against colonial forces in these parts of the world, it was only a matter of time before they reached the Australian coastline or the western United States. It was more than just being able to seize natural resources. It was a real psychological shock to both the United States and the Allies because they underestimated the Japanese amphibious capabilities. Did the U.S. prepare for an amphibious attack? I mean, considering I think the army dominated in the the army was the major force in the Philippines. Is it because the army didn't think about amphibious warfare? Did the Navy have any play in in trying to defend the Philippines? Um, I think for the U.S. case in the defense of uh, the Philippines and in the other Pacific garrisons, uh, I, I think they sorely underestimated J Japan's ability to project power from its home islands. But the, the irony is that you got the U.S. Marines, the 4th Marines, the China Marines, that were watching the Japanese conduct amphibious operations off the uh, eastern coast of China during the inner warriors, especially when when the, scene, the second Sino-Japanese War kicks off with the, uh, with the Japanese seizing key coastal cities along China's coast. Um, you know, you got First Lieutenant uh, Victor Krulak, who's a, uh, who becomes uh, a future three-star general. As a First Lieutenant, he takes his own initiative to take, uh, take uh, you know, photographs of Japanese landing craft as they're move, moving into Shanghai when the Ch Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists are trying to defend the city against the Japanese invasion, you know. And then you also got the fact that you had the U.S. Marines also carefully observing what other countries were doing to, in the development of their amphibious capabilities. Mm -hmm. In the case of the Philippines, you know, you got General MacArthur who's clamoring for more U.S. support, more men and resources to defend the island. But at that time, it's, they're still going through the Great Depression. They still have this isolationist mentality. And even though the argument could be made that they did the peacetime draft and the mobilization, they didn't know exactly when the war was going to kick off. I mean, until the Japanese attacked in December 7th, 1941, you know, they were the fact that the U.S. population was kind of, you know, kind of annoyed with the fact that we here we are mobilizing our troops and nothing's happening. No one was expecting the war to to come like it did against Hawaii. They were expecting somewhere in the Philippines a more deliberate movement. Mm -hmm. So looking at um, D-Day, were the um, the European allies, were they as effective in their amphibious assaults as the U.S.? Was there any training between the various nations in that regard? How, how has that worked out? Do you know? I know for a fact, though, that the British were against launching any type of amphibious landing straight into the teeth of, of Nazi Germany's Europe. As a matter of fact, I mean, they talk, they want, the U.S. wanted to go ahead and launch directly, directly on the beaches of France. But the British were scarred, not just from the DF raid, but they also still had this lingering, uh, psychological trauma of Gallipoli, where they suffered horrendous losses. And the last thing the British, especially now the Lord of Admiralty, Winston Churchill is now the prime minister of the United Kingdom and the British Empire has these huge nightmares of being able to land the U.S., British, and Allied forces on the beaches of Europe and them having to be trapped by the powerful German military. You know, So in this case, the argument could be made that Prime Minister Winston Churchill kind of uh, guided the Americans along 
to first land in North Africa in order to test its feet and test its weapons and gain the experience it needed to fight the Weimark, and then later on talk about the soft underbelly of Europe by having them knock out the Italians, which turned out to be not as successful as Winston Churchill hoped. And then, of course, later on after Italy, they're thinking about instead of landing in France, how about Greece, let's try the Balkans, and the Americans were not the least bit interested because by that time, they felt that they had enough experience and know-how to be able to launch an amphibious invasion. And in the, at the beginning, of course, the British had the most had the more powerful military force. But as 1942, 1943, and 1944 come around, whether or not the British were uh, all about helping the U.S. with the amphibious invasion didn't matter because by that time the United States was fully mobilized. They had the preponderance of troops, weapons, equipment, supplies, and resources. And they felt with or without the Allies, although it would be nice to have them, they felt that they can go at it alone. But at this point, that's where you get into that this argument that war is an extension of politics through other means. And political arguments could be made that the British didn't want to be left out of the alliance because you had the Soviets coming in from the east. You had the United States coming in from the west with, with preparation for the, one of the largest amphibious invasions in history. And the British didn't want to be left out of the political fallout that was about to happen in Europe once the war was concluded. Has the U.S. approached amphibious warfare in this period, and maybe, you know, either before or after as well, has it always been that an amphibious attack will, the goal will be for a permanent or a, a, a beachhead that you will operate out of and into the enemy territory? Or how about just amphibious raids? Is there much as far as that as far as we're going to hit quickly, do some damage, and then pull out. I think in the beginning of the uh, beginning of the Second World War, because of our naval limited naval capabilities, we're still trying to mobilize as a nation. We were really fascinated with conducting amphibious raids for two reasons. One is because we didn't have the military power projection yet, and two, we wanted to offset and distract the, the Japanese from conducting any type of concerted attack against either the Western Pacific or the South Pacific. You know, I know in the past, just looking at the American amphibious capabilities from the Spanish-American War up to the interwar years, they kind of looked at it as a, as a ways to police the different territories. So, yes, they did land troops there. Sometimes they conducted limited operations like Tangier where you have the the, the wind and the lion where they said either bring Pericaris alive or Razuli dead argument, you know. And then you had ones where you had Marines landing in places like Nicaragua or, uh, or various parts of the Caribbean to, do, to enforce the big stick policy, to serve as a policeman, to maintain governments that were friendly to the United States, to keep American interests uh, open for, for being used by the American population. And that goes the same thing for the Philippines there, where you had the Filipino insurrection and you had amphibious warfare that plays a vital part in policing that part of the world as well, trying to not only pacify the islands, but also bring it together under U.S. colonial rule at that time. How much did um, technology, landing craft technology, um, play a part in developing uh, the U.S. approach to it, you know, from Spanish-American War to World War II? I think for the Spanish-American War, it was more of an ad hoc affair, and I used that as my starting point for this book because of the fact that it was the first, not only because it was the first time that the U.S. Uh, deployed thousands of troops to distance locations in the world, but also it, it 
was a very powerful lesson to the United States that they needed to get their act together and that they needed to figure out not only making sure that they had a modern Navy, which they did by that, by that time, but the fact that they also needed a, a military force that they were able to easily project onto the beaches of foreign countries in order to protect their interests. So from, from the Spanish-American War up to the First World War, you really don't see that much uh, development in amphibious technology simply because of the fact that they never had to go up against a modern power. These were really, really, uh, you know, backwater countries that, uh, that required U.S. policing. You know, you can make the argument that they, at that time, that they, you think of like Kipling's The White Man's Burden, so to speak, you know. But by World War One, you notice that the U.S. weren't the ones that were using amphibious capabilities. It was the British that were using amphibious capabilities. And they used it to great effect. When people talk about amphibious capabilities in World War One, they always go to Gallipoli. But when you look at how the British ended up in Gallipoli, you saw that they conducted amphibious operations to seize key strategic colonies from the German Empire, both in China, the, uh, the Pacific, in various parts of Africa, like Cameroon, German, uh, German East Africa, German West, Southwest Africa, and the fact that as they built their confidence in landing troops and seizing these different colonial possessions, they decided to go for the huge gamble here by landing troops against the Ottoman Empire. Because they, and then to them, even though we call it a gamble to the British, it wasn't a gamble. They built that confidence between 1914 and 1915 by the success of their amphibious operations in seizing German colonies. And so when it came to knocking out what they thought was going to be a understrength, weak, uh, sickly Ottoman Empire, they were unpleasantly surprised by the fact that they were defeated in Gallipoli. Mm-hmm. And that's what kind of was the buzzkill for the British, is that the, not only was a, it was a total military disaster, but it was a political fiasco for, for Churchill, who ends up like not only leaving the British government, but going to fight in the Western Front afterwards to try to get some legitimacy for himself and to prove that he's, he's a patriotic, uh, representative of the British Empire. And so for the Americans, you know, they're more optimistic in the sense that they saw technology as the key to overcoming the difficulties that the British faced in fighting amphib- using amphibious warfare against not just the Ottoman Empire, but against modern powers like Germany and Japan. Mm-hmm. So by the interwar years, not only do you have the Marine Corps taking a look at the after-action reports from the British Expeditionary Force in Gallipoli, but the fact that they also took a look at British operations against these German colonies in Africa and the Asia-Pacific region. And they found out that a way to get around prepared enemy positions on the beaches is to utilize the industrial technology and the scientific know-how to develop not only greater firepower, but the mobility and the protection and the tactics needed to overcome and defeat the enemy in these locations. So by the interwar years, you start off, when you look at some of the pictures of what the U.S. Marines and the Navy and the Army were toying with, it's almost comical, but it, with small things come, come great, great uh, outcomes from it, where a small tractor trailer, no bigger than a, than a school desk back in the 1920s, you know, evolved into modern Amtraks, not modern, the Higgins boats, the type of uh, vehicles that would serve as the workhorse for amphibious operations. Is um, naval gunfire and air support absolute requirements for a successful amphibious attack? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, you, you, I know if there was like an Air Force counterpart with me or a naval, a U.S. Navy representative with me, they would say that it was almost like an orchestra. You need all the all the branches of the service to be able to conduct amphibious landing here. In the case of the air air power, there, it's about establishing control over the air. Not only that, just being able to attack the enemy from the air to neutralize its defenses in order to prepare for uh, amphibious landing. For naval gunfire, because it has a bigger bigger firepower than air warfare during that time, it was about the amphibious forces being able to communicate with the ships offshore to be able to launch devastating but pinpoint attacks on critical enemy defenses on the beach there. Hmm. And then, of course, you got artillery, you have tanks, you have the, what you call a combined arms force that's able to work harmoniously together in order to to neutralize enemy positions, surround and destroy the enemy in place there. But it was something that didn't happen overnight. It took lots of training and education over in order just to develop the tentative landing manual, which was used kind of like as the Bible to conduct amphibious operations. You know, but then it, then it comes down to hard experience that was learned in the uh, in North Africa, in Italy, in the Pacific, and then finally in Western Europe. So it seems that amphibious warfare is probably the most difficult um, operation to conduct because it requires all three services to be at their best, and then they have to perform perfectly in combined arms warfare, which is the most difficult type of warfare, I think, to you know to com- combine various arms together. Uh, would you well, would you say that or? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean. The fact, like, it's more than just different services and different techniques of fighting war, where it's air, land, and sea. You know, you also got the service culture as well that they, that's been built over the, over since the existence of the republic. So there was, there was a lot of give and take on all the services. You know, and the, and the fact that it kind of set the foundations for, for the joint, for the joint forces later on in the 20th century speaks volumes on. The lessons learned that each service could not fight a war for the United States alone. That instead they had to play on each other's greatest strengths. For the Marine Corps, it was amphibious landing. For the Navy, obviously, it was being able to sink enemy ships and be able to dominate the waters and the coast. For the uh, for the Army Air Corps, which later became the Ar- the Air Force, it was domination of the air. And then for the Army, it was domination of land itself. There, so each of the services played well together. When the, when it came to putting your money where your mouth is, which was being able to engage and defeat the enemy in place, whether it was in North Africa or Europe or the Asia Pacific region. I'm speaking with David Nasca, author of The Emergence of American Amphibious Warfare, 1898 to 1945. You can find more information about David on his Amazon author page. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, so far, Please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more military history ranging from the ancient to the modern, please visit warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep up with my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at fullcontactnerd.com and technologyinspace.com. And now back to the podcast. Was uh, has amphibious warfare always been a prime 
task for the Marine Corps, or is that something that developed over time and maybe during this period that you looked at? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you can pretty much when you look at the United States Marine Corps, they were originally just policemen to keep uh, sailors in line aboard ships and to serve as a as a means of security for the captain of the ship or the admiral, or even just to do some landings on the beaches in order to protect the uh, the naval officers when they negotiate with natives or they went ashore to go explore. But as the 20th century approached, uh, before the Spanish-American War, we see the Industrial Revolution come to pass. We see the development of uh, new weapons and technology. But more importantly, we see the professionalization of the Navy as well there. And as a result, they kind of ask yourselves, what's the purpose of having a Marine Corps? Because there are no, we don't need naval policemen to keep our sailors in line because now they're professionalized now. They're full-time careerists. You know, so you get into this argument within the inner workings of the Marine Corps is what should the role of the Marine Corps be now since we're no longer serving as military policemen? And as a matter of fact, you know, there is a, it was an internal struggle where you got people like like Major General Smedley Butler who are looking at the Marine Corps as colonial soldiers, finding what was known as the banana wars or pacifying the Philippines or do, putting down uh, different revolts like the uh, Boxer Rebellion, you know, over in China, you know, and then we got on the other side of the Marine Corps, we got someone by the name of Major General Lejeune, mm-hmm. who's able to identify and embrace amphibious warfare. And he was able to get that from influential theorists, you know, where you had uh, Lieutenant Colonel Pete Ellis, who did a series of papers and research on predicting how how the United States was going to fight Japan. And it wasn't just the rainbow plants. It was like deliberately, how are we going to use ground forces in conjunction with naval forces to compel the Japanese to stop their policy of aggression and expansion in the Asia-Pacific region? But it was all these different cats and dogs, these uh, crackpots and people who were kind of like in the outliers, which I thought is fascinating, that all built up on each other over the years and were able to help set the foundations when World War II began of uh, the uh, first amphibious uh, capabilities of the United States, modernized capabilities. How did the Marine Corps training change as they took on this this role of doing amphibious warfare? I think for the United States Marine Corps, they really became fascinated with it uh, under Major General Lejeune, where he devoted a lot of Marine Corps' uh, resources and manpower into studying and developing amphibious capabilities. It was almost like the German Weimark, where they were experimenting with armored warfare and combined arms and the use of Houthier or infiltration tactics with modern weapons. For the Marine Corps, being the smallest organization, having the least amount of resources, it was a very humbling time because they were start, it was during the 1920s and later in the 30s where they were trying to compete with the other services. And not to mention the fact that most of the services were also demobilizing as after as a result of the aftermath for the First World War. So for the Marine Corps, it was a lot of studying uh, actual action reports from the British. It was also taking a look at the German success in amphibious operations. A lot of people forget that the Germans launched one uh, very successful mil- uh, amphibious campaign in the uh, seizure of the Baltic Islands off of uh, Russia. And some people would argue that it allowed the Germans to knock the Russians out of the war by seizing these critical islands in the Baltic by isolating St. Petersburg and cutting off the Russian coast from the Baltic. 
you know, but it was more than just studying by the United States Marine Corps. It was a lot of sand table exercises. It was a lot of developments of, of modest technologies that they didn't have a lot of money to spend on. So they tried all sorts of different type of tractors. They tried all sorts of different type of weapons. Um, they also tried try, practice trying to land on an opposed beach. And it wasn't very, very uncommon for the Marine Corps to conduct amphibious exercises in the Caribbean during that time, where they use uh, parts of Puerto Rico to practice landing on the beach against a, a phantom uh, opposing force and trying to learn how to build the Iron Mountain. Things that people take for granted is, when I say build the Iron Mountain, being able to not only land the troops there and make sure that they land as safe as possible, but also give them the equipment, the supplies, and the logistics they need to be able to push off the beach and be able to overwhelm and destroy the enemy. Now, what about the uh, technology or skills as far as checking the what the the terrain is beneath the waterline? You know, making sure there aren't obstacles. Um, you know, what was the well, development of that? I think that was that was definitely something that comes around with the uh, with with the Second World War. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, the reason why I say that is because again, looking at Tarawa. They were not expecting the landing craft to be stuck on the coral reefs hundreds of yards off the uh, enemy coast there, off the island there. So as a result, they were using scuba divers, they were using swimmers to kind of take samples from the beach to see what type of consistency the beach was as far as could the sand hold, not just people landing on the beach and walking across the beach, but could it support uh, tractor trailers, motorized vehicles, would it be able to sustain like a huge population on the shoreline for prolonged periods of time? There was also a study on the uh, on the tides as well. If I land the landing force on the beach, will it get washed washed off the beach from the water that comes in from the sea? It was a very it was a very painful process in the opening salvos of World War II for the Americans because even though they talk about it theoretically. When reality, when uh, when fantasy meets reality, there, that's where you definitely find out that everything that was theoretical kind of goes out the door, and then you just learn through hard practical experience. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you about um, had, uh, the resources you used for your research. Um, what did you go to to um, to write this book? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, the great part about the National Capital Region. You got all these archives around in, in the area there, down in D.C. But the one I focused on the most was the Great Research Center in Quantico, where there's this ton of primary source material where I was able to look at First Lieutenant Victor Krulak's uh, after-action report from the Japanese landing in Shanghai. I was able to read about a German, uh, German officer who was a student at one of the Marine Corps schools talk about the Baltic Sea campaign and his experiences in it. You know, and the fact that they had guest speakers that used to go over to the Marine, to the Marine Corps base Quantico to give lectures on amphibious warfare, especially uh, British officers that were involved in the Gallipoli campaign. It was very fascinating. And the, the thing was is that this wasn't all like in, uh, in PowerPoint or uh, overheads. It was pretty much deliberately thought out notes that they used as their outline to present to the students. So even though we don't have like the actual recordings of what was taught at these schools, a look at the notes showed that they put a lot of dedication and skill and careful thought into what they were trying to teach, not just the enlisted Marines in the Marine Corps, but also the officer corps in the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. Are there any other big archives that were helpful in studying this subject? 
Oh, absolutely. Um, I was able to take a look at some of the Japanese archives over in Tokyo, where the the uh, the the imperial the imperial archives over in in downtown Tokyo had translated material from the Japanese conducting amphibious operations in various parts of the Asia Pacific region. And what I thought was fascinating was just the fact that uh, everyone talks about, and this is just a side note, everyone talks about MacArthur's landing in Incheon in nine, in, during the Korean War in 1950 and how he was able to defeat the North Koreans. But the irony was that he kind of had uh, some cheat notes because him and his father were involved in when the Japanese landed in Incheon during the the Sino-Japanese or the, the uh, Russo-Japanese War, and they landed almost in the exact same location during that time. And then, you know, 50 years later, you have U.S. troops landing in that same general vicinity to defeat the North Koreans. So, for the Japanese to read about the Japanese landing in Incheon in order to march on Port Arthur in order to isolate and then later force the capitulation of the Russian garrison there is really fascinating. Huh. Yeah, that is pretty cool. Um, what part of the research was most enjoyable for you? I mean, for me, it was definitely the Great Research Center because of the fact that being a Marine myself and reading about the everyone from a second lieutenant up to the general officer level, seeing and having the experience to understand what exactly they they were planning the amphibious operations and exercises during their time, and it's it's amazing that. You know, like 60 years later, where you're able to still connect with the past and be able to understand their thought process on, for like examples of Fourth Marines observing uh, Japanese landings along the uh, along the eastern uh, seaboard of China, and then being able to provide these reports to Headquarters Marine Corps. I mean, the fact that that the Americans didn't uh, appreciate the, the Japanese amphibious capabilities is arguable because the Marines definitely appreciated what the Japanese were capable of doing just by virtue of, of not only being able to, to collect intelligence on them, but the fact that they were so successful in defeating such a large and powerful country like China during that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and think- then what I even thought was fascinating was just the various characters. You know, when I read about the about the Marines landing in Tientsin uh, during the Boxer Rebellion and reading how many adjutants were killed or wounded trying to save uh, Lieutenant Smedley Butler there. I, <laughs> it, was, it was just like, uh, it was pretty fascinating to read that sort of thing. Uh, if I was the commanding officer, I would have probably pulled uh, First, First Lieutenant Smedley Butler aside and said, hey, stop getting other people killed with your reckless <laughs> heroism, you know, but it was... It was good. He was just a motivated lieutenant is what I would expect. So it, it was fascinating. I, I could, the great thing about human nature, unlike the, the conduct of war, is that human nature never changes because you can have that argument about the, the nature of warfare versus the conduct of warfare. And conduct of warfare is always changing just based on the technologies and our skills and our technological know-how and how we try to compel another enemy state to to comply with our, our will, you know, going into Clausewitz, imposing our will on the other. Mm-hmm. While for human nature, the reasons and the motivations of why we go to war as, a, as, as human beings has remained timeless. Uh, the experience, firsthand accounts experiences that these Marines, especially when you read about with the old breed, mm-hmm. you, know, or, you know, helmet for my pillow, you can easily transcribe their experiences in today's recent wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, where you have that grittiness, but you at the same time you 
and you had these real psychological and social bondings that took in, in mean among the uh, small unit leadership there. Mm -hmm. What did you find that was most surprising? I think what I found most surprising, Chris, was the fact that the British were one of the first to use amphibious warfare in a strategic con in a context. And I, and, they, and I say that because of the fact that the British were not only able to use that during the French and Indian War, but they were most surprisingly was during the First World War where they used ad hoc amphibious capabilities to seize Germany's overseas colonies. I mean, got it. They, the French got a little bit and various countries like Italy got a little bit of territory, but the British ended up becoming the, the major dominating power after the First World War, at great cost. But they were able to do that, not just from beating the central powers in Europe, but the fact they seized the most territory and resources overseas as well, kind of blocking out the other European powers at that time. And I think because of that, when you have the United States enter the Second World War, they used the British uh, approach of amphibious warfare as their model to fight against the Axis powers. For the British, they used it great for for knocking out uh, Italian East Africa or seizing uh, French Madagascar when it fell under the Vichy French or even landing in pro-access states like Iraq, you know, and being able to, to, to occupy parts of Syria from the Vichy French. You know, and I think the Americans learned greatly from that, from being able to use the amphibious capabilities that they are developing and being able to use it in a strategic sense. And in this case, they were able to dominate most of Western and, and Central Europe, and they were able to dominate not just the Pacific, but have carte blanche over the Japanese islands after the defeat of Japan, therefore setting the bulk worth of uh, U.S. US the strategic posture in defending the homeland during the Cold War and arguably even in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. It seems, I'm just thinking about, to conduct amphibious warfare, you, you have to start with a pretty good-sized navy. And um, how should I put this? Um, I guess, so apart from the complexity of amphibious warfare and the amount of training it needs, you also have to have a pretty good-sized force to conduct it, which means that very few nations can ever really develop good amphibious warfare capabilities. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's just a comment. Oh, no, I, I know exactly what you're talking about, Chris. I mean, the good part was is that by the time the United States develops amphibious capabilities, it already had a powerful Navy. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we see that when uh, when Theodore Roosevelt uh, deploys the Great White Fleet, you know, and the Great White Fleet was a result of the fact that the U.S. Navy was hesitant to fight, to go to war with Chile when some uh, U.S. sailors get roughed up in that country, you know, that's how bad the Navy was in the, uh, in the uh, mid to late 19th century. I mean, after the American Civil War, the, they still had wooden ships, you know, and it was because of being, having doubts of being able to defeat Chile with, uh, with its own Navy that the United States kind of took a long, hard look at itself and be able to focus the attention and resources it deserved to, develop one of the greatest navies in the world, starting with the Great White Fleet, you know. Mm -hmm. I think the Great White Fleet was more than just the United States bumping its chest, and, but it was also a strategic message in the, to the fact that you had a new player in the international arena, mm -hmm. and they had the means and they had the technology to deploy a large, powerful fleet. And they did that when you follow the Great White Fleet's uh, route, 
they touched in all the major regions of the world that had great power competition, Europe, parts of Asia, and especially stopping in Japan. And the fact, and then just making the long, long trip back to the United States. Not, and it, and it was not only that, but it also showed that the United States had this amazing power projection capability to sail around the world. And if they, if any powerful navy like the Great White Fleet could sail around the world, that means that they could potentially land military forces in anywhere they choose if they, if it, it's in within the U.S. interests. Mm-hmm. I guess sort of the train of thought I, I, I'm going with that question or point is that, you know, buying the tech or buying and maintaining the technology for amphibious warfare, the landing ships, and also training the people to do it is sort of a cost that for something that you might never have to use. So you, you know, you're, when you're resourcing your Navy, it's like, do we sink money into this capability or do we build more ships to fight with, you know, and to go and to invest in amphibious warfare is, is a pretty big investment, which I think a lot of countries can't do or, or won't do because they might not see the need for it in the future. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the thing about, uh, about the United States and every other country besides trying to predict the next war is how can I fight the next war on the cheap, you know, by expending the least amount of resources and, and asking for, sacrifices from the from the uh from the population i and i think in the united states's case they do what every other country does they kind of put their fingers in the pie of all these various technologies not just for amphibious capabilities but we also got naval aviation we got strategic bombing we got the tactical use of of the air force you know and then and the fact that uh, you also got other countries experimenting as well like the japanese Besides naval aviation, we're also experimenting with amphibious warfare as well. But they didn't look at amphibious warfare uh, being used necessarily against the mainland of the United States, as we would see later on in the Second World War when they established the Asia East Coast Prosperity Sphere. You know, we see the fact that a lot of experimentation goes on between the major conflicts. And then when the major conflicts do occur, resources and thought process and policies change accordingly. And I think for the United States, uh, as the strategic uh, situation became more serious, they came to realize that amphibious warfare was essential for the safety and security of the United States and be able to impose unconditional surrender on the Axis powers. And the United States was able to do that because they had the wealth and they had the natural resources and they had the industrial capability that more so than the Axis powers or the British or the Soviet Union. You know? So in this case, the argument, the reason why I cut it off at 1945 is that now the United States is entering a new era. The fact that they use atomic weapons that show, that gives a false impression that, hey, we don't need to have amphibious capabilities anymore. We can just use the atomic bomb. But they didn't realize the, the repercussions of using atomic weapons against Japan. And they find that out the hard way when the Soviet Union and other countries begin to develop their own uh, nuclear capabilities. And they've learned also the the human and the environmental price that's paid with using nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. So when you fast forward to now the 21st century, you have special operators, you have drones, you have space capabilities, you have information operations, you have cyber warfare, you know, you have all these different options of being able to project power. The fact that you can potentially use cyber capabilities to shut down a, a country's 
computer infrastructure or sabotage their financial systems, you know, that's that's imposing a cost. That's compelling the enemy to do something you don't want, the, compelling an enemy country to compel them to do something you want them to do. So if a country were to use cyber capabilities against the United States and the cost of them stopping from using those cyber capabilities is to allow uh, country A to do this or that or the other without U.S. interference, you know, the U.S. would have to ask themselves, is the price of complying with that enemy country worth the price of gain our, our our information systems back online, you know, and I think in the case of World War II, the United States imposed a cost, which was unconditional surrender, and they was the U.S. was only able to do that when they were literally at the doorstep of countries like Japan when they occupied the Ryukus, or in this case, landing in the uh, west in Western Europe and moving into the heart of Germany. Mm-hmm. Was there a particular question, as you were doing your research, any particular question that was really difficult to come to a conclusion on? Uh, I, I could tell you, like for me, it was where does where does the validity of amphibious warfare end? That was the main question that I struggled with. Um, an argument could be made to go beyond 1945 into the Cold War or even into, into the 21st century where you got Brigadier General Mattis during the opening uh, – Salos of the global war on terrorism, launching one of the lo- longest amphibious landings in in U.S. history, which was landing a a reinforced infantry battalion from from uh, from the Indian Ocean all the way into the middle of Afghanistan. You know, and it was. But for me, it was I, the reason why I picked 1945 is again just the the introduction of nuclear bombs at that point, the use of atomic weapons of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and the fact that it kind of changes the mentality of the political and military leadership, where they figured that amphibious warfare is over with. We no longer need it. We have strategic bombers now. you got guys like Curtis LeMay who are dominating the, the whole Air Force scene there. Mm-hmm. And it, the irony is that when they had these weapons and the Korean War kicks off, they found out that they can't even use it because uh, by then they're more familiar with the repercussions are and the fact that they can start a, a potentially a, another global war, but this time a catastrophic war. Mm-hmm. You know, so and and they, you also find the fact that they are able to use amphibious capabilities. What the, the United States has been doing for since its existence, conducting policing actions in various parts of the world, where there's no. There, there's no uh, infrastructure. There's no modern facilities. Pretty much being able to operate aboard a, mod, uh, a warship or a flotilla of warships and be able to conduct amphibious landings to provide humanitarian assistance or be able to conduct NEO, which is non-combatant evacuation operations, or just to conduct a demonstration still has powerful repercussions. So, Chris, for me, it was it was very hard to cut the line at 1945, I can tell you that much, because the amphibious warfare and its use in different parts of U.S. history was still valid during that time as it was during the beginning uh, of the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. Did, you, uh, did you come across any, um, any events that had an emotional impact on you? I think for me, the the uh, the event that had the emotional impact was definitely uh, Brigadier General Mattis launching the uh, amphibious operation from the uh, from the Indian Ocean into Afghanistan. Um, having served in Afghanistan myself, 
with combined uh, combined transitions, security command, Afghanistan, C-Sticka. Hmm. It was it, having to be able to walk through some of the same battlegrounds that the Marines walked through was very very moving. I can tell you that much. Hmm. I mean, for me, my experiences were more in Iraq and in Fallujah and Ramadi when I was with Third Battalion, Eighth Marines. But uh, I could tell you that when I read about the experiences of other Marines, soldiers, sailor, and airmen from their experiences in combat, it's, it definitely strikes a powerful chord having served in three combat tours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what do you hope this book will do? Uh, just like any book, I, I hope <laughs> it generates discussion and thought about amphibious capabilities. I know it's probably not sometimes not the most popular thing to say, especially when we're in the Google generation and, you know, the people downloading apps. But I think sometimes the old ways still work best. <laughs> so when you the fact that you have a have a bunch of warships off your coast and they have the potential to land uh, soldiers on the ground there, it strikes fear into anybody. Could you imagine if the Chinese had an amphibious force off the coast of California? It would be more than battle Los Angeles with the aliens. It'd be, <laughs> so it definitely would strike fear. And when you look at like the 9-11 attacks or when you look at the attack on Pearl Harbor, the, the damage, while arguably could, could be hard on the country, the psychological impact it had on the United States was lasting. I mean, for the United States, the attack on Pearl Harbor from 1941 to today, you know, it always pushed the United States arguably to maintain a uh, various various bases and stations throughout the globe to prevent such an attack on U.S. homeland. And even the 9/11 attacks, the, the fact that it shut down this the country overnight for several days, and it and the psychological costs of our of our country regain its confidence to be able to to curb back on its military operations in various parts of the world is very powerful. So the fact that for this book here, I think it, it should generate continued discussions on the validity of amphibious warfare and what a powerful capability it could still have in shaping international relations, mm-hmm. especially the United States and in its relationship with the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Did you have any difficulties getting the book uh, finished or published? You know, Chris, not at all. Um, it was a labor of love. I didn't feel like I was grinding it out. I know like uh, when you talk to some authors and you definitely watch some interviews, like Stephen King kind of sits in front of the desk and makes himself type like five to ten pages a day. <laughs> For me, I felt like it was just, it was an enjoyable experience because it was something I was having an, an internal monologue with myself of being discussed being able not only to talk about the history of amphibious warfare from the American perspective, but also be able to kind of conduct those those mind experiments where I'm figuring out why did the United States do this and not that? Why did the United States Marine Corps adopt this type of technology to conduct amphibious warfare and this service didn't? I thought it was very fascinating. It was a very enjoyable experience. And so when I submitted it to the Naval Institute Press, uh, they didn't kick it back, and maybe this might be, make me feel spoiled. They didn't kick it back and tell me to write it like five million times. They were <laughs> satisfied with the work, but it was, I wasn't surprised because it was something I enjoyed doing. It was definitely a labor of love, Chris. I can tell you that. Good. So, what's your uh, current writing project? Do you have one? Oh, absolutely, Chris. I I just finished a manuscript on the presidential use of the all volunteer force, and the dates I'm exploring is from nineteen. 19- 1950 to 2017, and it mm-hmm. deals with 
the presidential decision making on the use of military force. And I think it's very fascinating because in today's day and age, especially with the global war on terrorism winding down, there's this uh, argument among some people that uh, that there's no curb on the use of military force because of the fact that we did away with the draft and we have the all-volunteer force and the fact that there's the argument where the U.S. population no longer cares or has a say on how U.S. military power is used in different parts of the world. And what this book does is make the counter-argument that even though that the all-volunteer force has resulted at the end of the draft, the look at the Gallup polls and various conflicts between 1950 and 2017 shows that the U.S. population still cares where they send their men and women, especially their sons and daughters, overseas in different parts of the world find various conflicts. And it's very fascinating. It, it goes against the popular belief that the United States uh, of America's political leadership has carte blanche to use the military however they want to. And that's far from the case when you examine the various conflicts uh, from the late 20th century into the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Okay. So where can people find you on the web? Do you have a social media or website? Oh, absolutely. I got my author's uh, homepage over on Amazon there. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if you click on the Amazon link there and you take a look at the, the author's page there, it'll show like uh, my biography, uh, how you can reach me, and uh, the, the various projects I'm working on. Okay. All right. And I'll just um, spell your name for people, uh, for listeners. Uh, so David, D-A-V-I-D, and NASCA is N-A-S-C-A. You got it, Chris. So, um, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? No, not at all, Chris. But I will say, though, it's been a pleasure talking with you. I I can't believe it's already been over an, over an hour. I felt like I just started like two minutes ago. I really thoroughly enjoyed talking with you. I enjoyed the questions. Again, the only thing I was missing was just having to nurse a beer or two with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That would be good. That would have been good. Um, oh. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate it too. I um yeah. So thanks very much. Hey, thank you, Chris. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more military history ranging from the ancient to the modern, please visit warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep track of my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. Thanks for listening.